The year was 1856. The last few centuries had been rough for this fledgling kingdom, this remnant of a crown jewel that once ruled all these lands from the far-off sea. Now, after civil war and plague, this last kingdom was a shell of several former glories. Such notions did not deter the thoughts of Narmacil II. His predecessors, great kings like Hyrmendasil I and Romandasil II, had dealt devastating defeats against the eastern invaders. Yes, Narmacil's scouts warned that these new peoples were deadly and strategic. Yes, his advisors had warned him that the Easterners had united into a vast confederation. Yes, the situation seemed more dire than ever. But still, Narmacil was not deterred. Iron was his resolve, steel was his weapon of choice. He had marched his army from the south to the north. He entered the lands of Rovanian, and he had united the scattered remnants of the northern army, and he was now stalwart against this impending enemy. Narmacil II, the fire sword in Quenyan, was the incendiary blade that would cut back the enemies of Rune once and for all. He would stand tall and proud and restore the kingdom beyond the plague, beyond the kin strife, beyond the doom that lay against all men. A horn sounded in the air. The Wayne Riders were approaching. Captains shouted orders at one another. Archers made ranks. Spearmen moved to the front. Cavalry fanned to the wings. Today, Gondor would strike back against the enemy and would show itself as the true heir of Numenor. Narmacil spotted the first of the Wayne Riders. Seconds passed and archers fired. The first wave of Wayne Riders crashed into the Gondorian and Rovanian infantry. Screams ran into the air. Blood splattered all over the plain. Then another horn erupted and Narmacil stood in horror. Another column of Wayne Riders had wheeled around and approached from a flank. Men collided into men. A minute had passed. Narmacil found himself confused. He had been on horseback and announcing orders. He was now face to face against several warriors. An axe wielder charged. A spearman stabbed forward. Narmacil blinked. It would be some time later before people realized what had happened. It would be some time before people found themselves shackled and enslaved by the Wayne Riders. It would be some time before the head of Narmacil II would be displayed in front of a vast army. The fire sword of Gondor had been quenched. The Wayne Riders would now ride in victory. And welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast. Today we have a special episode to celebrate my favorite holiday, April 1st. I'm not going to explain what this holiday is, but if you know, you know. Anyhow, we're going to ungracefully switch subjects now to the topic at hand. The peoples of Rune in the Third Age of Middle-earth. You see, the nomads of Rune are a fascinating people with a long history. 
They were connected intimately to places like the Kingdom of Erebor, the settlements of Rovanian, and the mighty power of Gondor. For thousands of years, runic cultures like that of the Wainwriters had substantial influence on world history, and yet their own perspectives are often forgotten about. Indeed, the historiography of this region is dominated by Elven and Gondorian scholarship, and we're left little in terms of indigenous perspectives. On today's episode, we'll try to dig deeper into the histories of the nomads of the East, but we should acknowledge the challenge here. We just don't have primary sources from the people of this region. We'll do our best, though. To start things off, we should first place things in a geographic context. The term Run comes from Sindarin, and it means East. Run, therefore, can refer to the East in a broad sense, which usually means anything past Rovanian. For our own purposes, we're going to try to place some boundaries on where Run is. Third Age Run consists of a large area. It was bordered by Mordor to the south, with the arid Lithui Mountains acting as a demarcation line. To the north lay the Iron Hills. The western edges were dominated by the forest of Rovanian, which in the Third Age was better known as Mirkwood. Then of course there lies the east, which likely stretched for an uncountable number of miles or kilometers. Maps of Middle-earth have no eastern endpoint for Rune, though some speculation indicates that eventually one would find the East Sea. Politically, Rune lies in an interesting nexus point that would lend itself to mass migratory movements. Its most obvious neighbor is that of Mordor in the south, and we know that throughout history, Sauron would engage diplomatically with the eastern peoples. To the north were a smattering of other groups who engaged in a facilitating relationship with Run. There were the dwarves of the Iron Hills, the lordship of Erebor, and the kingdom of Dale. These northern peoples at times traded with the easterlings, while at other times the two sides waged war against one another. In Rovanian in the west, there was the woodland realm of the Sylvan Elves, various Bjorning communities, and the domain of Dol Guldur. Just south of Rovanian were the kingdoms of Rohan and Gondor, and the latter kingdom would have a substantial relationship to the Easterlings, though we'll get there soon. Within Rune are a number of key geographic features. The most dominant feature is that of the inland Sea of Rune. Though called a sea, it's probably better to characterize this body of water as a lake. Two key rivers feed into the Sea of Rune namely the River Karnan that emerges from the Iron Hills, and the River Running that runs out of the Lonely Mountain. The River Running, or the Kelduin in some elven languages, is a particularly formidable system. The river itself was fed by several tributaries and stretched for around 600 Numenorean miles. Gondorian records give us few other details about the immediate areas near the Sea of Run, though the northwestern shore of the lake was known as Dorwinian. Dorwinian had a reputation for strong wines, and so we can infer that the land here was conducive for settled agriculture, vineyards, and winemaking. The people of Dorwinian were known to trade their products with the sylvan elves of Romanian and the Gondorians, so it's also probable that the area was steady and allowed for the safe passage of merchants and caravans. 
Other notable features include a set of hills that bounded along the southwest of the sea, while on the northeast were a series of forests. In some maps, a large island can be found in the eastern front of the Sea of Rune. Otherwise, we can speculate that the region consisted of vast grasslands and meadows, though we don't really have much more to go on than that. The east has always been a prominent area within the history of Middle-earth. Though it is considered a mysterious and barbarous place by the Third Age, it should be remembered that Rune had been the epicenter of foundational developments. Indeed, one of the first major events in all of Arda would take place here. The first elves would find themselves awoken in a place far to the east on an island known as Quivienin. The earliest humans likewise originated in the east. As elves moved westward at the behest of the Valar, and as humans moved westward into Beleriand, our lens shifts due to historiographical changes. Even by the First Age, we start to lose great detail on the events happening in the East. Our scholars in Balerion focused mostly on the Easterlings as agents of change and invasion, rather than writing about these peoples in any depth specifically. What we can assume is that given the consistent movement of humans from East to West, we can imagine a number of seismic demographic events that took place in Rune. Groups like the Swarthy Men would come to play major roles in the events of Beleriand. The lives of great figures like Hirin and Turin Turumbar were defined by various eastern invasions. In the Second Age, we can also imagine a number of interactions between Numenor and the wider east, though again, we are given seldom details about these potential developments. Today, we aren't really discussing these mythical developments. We don't really have much to go on when it comes to these early eras about Run. Rather, today's episode will focus on groups of a later age, and really I just mean the Third Age. In the Third Age, interactions with the East were mostly defined by relationships with Gondor. For the most part, Gondor maintained a position of belligerence against the East. Gondorian historians argue that Easterling invasions occurred consistently starting in the year 490 of the Third Age. The first invasion occurred during the reign of the 7th Gondorian monarch, King Ostaher. Ostaher's son, Tarostar, would drive out the Easterlings and take on a rather formidable name, Romandesil, or East Victor. Tragically, Romandesil's name would be rather ironic as in 541 of the Third Age, a group of Easterlings would successfully kill the king of Gondor during an invasion of Ithilien. His son Turumbar would get his vengeance and defeat the Easterling horde. Since these events, Gondor in the east would wage nearly perpetual warfare. The reign of Hyrmendasil I from 1015 to 1149 of the Third Age would see Gondor conquer much of Rune itself. After losing control over the territory, Gondor would launch another invasion in 1248. Later down the line, the peoples of Rune would launch their own invasions. Easterling groups attacked Gondor in the 1800s, 2500s, and of course in 3019. We can imagine that throughout this long period of time, both Gondor and the East would launch minor raids and assaults on one another. 
Gondorian records are quite clear that kings like Romandasil II would take great pleasure in disrupting the camps of many Easterling groups. Now, throughout this time, I've been using the term Easterling. This is likely a Gondorian term, and it is quite denigrating if one thinks about it. It paints an entire peoples in a single light as a mass horde of evil warriors, and such propaganda would be especially potent during the War of the Ring. To avoid following such problematic language, I think we should finally start talking about the peoples of Rune directly. Of course, the term Easterling is useful, because we have so few records about the specific groups here. For much of the history we've mentioned, our Gondorian and Elven historians told us nothing about the names or cultures of these Eastern peoples. We are thus left with only two major players to consider the Wayne Riders, and the Balchoth. While we are limited to these two cultures, they can provide us with a number of details that likely apply to other Eastern groups. Keep this in mind as we dissect further. So starting off, we have the formidable Wayne Riders. The Wayne Riders emerged on the scene in 1851 of the Third Age, when they invaded the lands of Rovanian. We are told that the Wayne Riders were probably a confederation of different runic peoples. The Wayne Riders, as evidenced by their name, utilized horse-drawn wagons known as Wains. We aren't exactly sure if they were a fully nomadic people, but we do know that many Wayne Riders camped in large wagon communities that they pulled around and around. All individuals, regardless of age or gender, were trained to defend their clan or tribal unit. However, gender differences certainly existed. Though armed and trained, women remained with the elderly and children in these camped fortifications while men participated in military operations. In battle, we are told that the chiefs of the Wayne Riders would fight on chariots. Now, I'm not exactly sure if this means only a small subset of Wayne Riders fought on chariots, or if most of the army did. In any case, we do know that the Wayne Riders excelled in martial skills, and I'd estimate that their forces consisted of chariot warriors, light cavalry, and an infantry corps. As we move back to the year 1851, we should note some important context. By this point in time, Gondor had been weakened substantially, having faced a disastrous war in Umbar, having been beset by a terrible civil war known as the Kinstrife, and having been devastated by a great plague. The Wayne Riders therefore emerged in a particularly fortunate period of time for them. Their invasion of Rovanian was seemingly ferocious and quick, as Gondorian historians note that this group was stronger than any other eastern group that had appeared prior. In addition, the Wayne Riders appeared to be supported by Mordor. The Wayne Riders initially invaded the lands of Rovanian. The kingdoms here, already devastated by prior war and plague, were easily defeated and sundered. In many cases, they enslaved the people they defeated. Gondor appears to have been slow to respond. King Narmasil, who we met in our introduction, would take to the field in 1856, a whole five years after the initial invasion of the Wayne Riders. We know that Narmasil spent some time scouring and uniting the now scattered Northmen, so perhaps that's what he was doing in those five years. 
Now, with a combined Gondorian and Rovanian army, Narmasil confronted the Wayne Riders in a great plain to the south of Mirkwood. The battlefield is curious to me, as a level plain would have made chariot movements rather effective. Sure, Gondor would have their own cavalry, but one would think that a more elevated or difficult terrain would have suited them better here. I have to imagine that this advantage played a key role in what would transpire. The combined army of Gondor and Rovanian, led by Narmasil and a Rovanian prince named Marhari, engaged the Wayne Riders. It seems that the Wayne Riders had split into columns. One came from the north, while another from the northeast. The attack, known as the Battle of the Plains, would be an absolute disaster for Gondor and its northern allies. Narmasil and Marhari were slain, much of the army routed, and those who survived would need to flee into Ithilien. In consequence, Gondor was forced to abandon Rovanian and much of its lands to the east of the Anduin River. We are told that many in Rovanian were now enslaved, and the sudden collapse of Gondor's armed forces may have allowed the Nazgul to reassert themselves in Mordor. Many Rovanians fled rather than be enslaved, and the Battle of the Plains would have a very interesting consequence in this regard. Marhwini, a son of the slain Marhari, led a contingent of Northmen across the Anduin and into the Vales of Anduin between the Carrick and the Gladden. Such peoples, related to the Bjornings, would eventually develop a new culture based on horsemanship. Such peoples would become known as the Yothid, and they would eventually form the kingdom of Rohan. This was an important development as Rohan would play a key role in supporting Gondor against eastern invasions. For nearly 40 years, Rovanian was held by the Wayne Riders. But in the 1890s, Gondorian king Kalimatar began plans for his vengeance. Sometime in 1899, the Yothid warned Kalimatar that the Wayne Riders were planning an invasion of Kalinardin. At the same time, a revolt erupted in Rovanian. Kalimatar became keenly aware of his opportunity, and in 1899, he launched an invasion against the Wayne Riders. The Yothid, under Marwini, came to Gondor's aid, and the two forces attacked the Wayne Riders in Athelion. Meanwhile, Ruvanian rebels attacked Wayne Rider forces from the Mirkwood Forest. At the Plain of Dagolod, Kalimatar scored a major victory against the Wayne Riders and pushed them back into Rune. This would not be the end of the Wayne Riders, however. The Confederation remained stable despite the loss of Rovanian, and from 1899 to around the 1940s, the Wayne Riders rebuilt their strength and developed new international alliances. Wayne Rider emissaries moved south and established ties with the Khand and Harad. In the 1940s, the Wayne Riders would invade Gondor once more. This time, it would be a two-pronged assault. The Wayne Riders attacked from the north, while Khand and Harad attacked from the south. Gondorian king Onduhur and his sons Ardamir and Faramir would mobilize an army and move north to head off the Wayne Riders. Gondorian strategists had expected the Wayne Riders to repeat the strategy at the Battle of the Plain, and therefore to split their army into two groups. This proved disastrous. The Wayne Riders instead rode at mighty speeds and crossed over the arid Lithwi Mountains. 
the Gondorian army hoped to deploy its men at Daggerlad and repeat their own successes in 1899. Instead, this adaptation by the Wayne Riders allowed them to attack Gondorian forces with surprise. Near the Black Gate of Mordor, the Gondorian army met disaster. Gondorian soldiers had no time to establish a defensive position. King Ondoher and his sons were quickly overwhelmed by enemy chariots and slain. The battle would last several more days, but it became clear that the Wayne Riders had gained a major victory. All seemed well, and soon Gondor would fall to ruin. This would be hubris from the part of the Wayne Riders. Although Gondor had faltered in the north, the southern front proved completely different. Under a captain named Iernil, Gondor's southern armies were successful in defeating the forces of Khand and Harad. Like Narmasil a century earlier, Ernil would unite the scattered northern army and attack the Wayne Riders. This time, though, Gondor would find success. Ernil found the Wayne Riders' main camp, and at the time the chiefs were feasting, and Ernil made the decision to launch a surprise attack. At the Battle of the Camps in 1944, Ernil's forces ran into the camp set it ablaze, and pushed the Wayne Riders firmly back to Run. This battle would have major consequences. The Wayne Riders were defeated, and the Confederation likely splintered. It would be some centuries before another major eastern invasion occurred. At the same time, the loss of King Onderher and much of his family had placed Gondor's succession under threat. To stave off a succession crisis, the Council of Gondor awarded the kingship of Irnil. Importantly, Irnil would be the penultimate king of Gondor, and the death of his son Ernur in 2053rd age would lead to the end of the monarchy. As we can see, the incursions and movements of Run would continue to influence the politics and history of Arda. As previously mentioned, it would take some time before the eastern peoples would make their presence known again. We can imagine a period of anarchy that followed the collapse of the Wayne Rider Confederation. Tribal units splintered, clans divided, and the region would become sundered into a number of squabbling factions. Sauron's influence likely continued to push through the region, and a number of eastern groups would worship Morgoth. At the same time, Though the timeline's a little fuzzier, the Blue Wizards are known to have entered the East and perhaps created anti-Sauron elements and magical cults. From the death of Erner to the 2400s, Gondor would be ruled by a series of stewards. We are told that in such time, Gondor would face the slow encroachment of enemies on its borders. We can imagine that runic groups would test Gondor's frontier forces, launching small raids and skirmishes. After some time, though, the East would once more unite under a major confederation. These would be the Balchoth. The Balchoth are considered to be related to the Wayne Riders, perhaps even descendants. They were a people who had migrated from the eastern edges of Run to Rovanian. Like the Wayne Riders, the Balchoths also lived in caravan communities, though they appear to have used their wagons significantly less in war. They were also not really known for cavalry, as their horses were mostly reserved for pulling those very wagons they lived in. 
It's also quite possible that the Balchoth had dwelt in the forest of Rune, given that they would eventually become quite home in the trees of Mirkwood. Once more, it is hard to determine what triggered mass migratory movements in Rune, but what we do know is that in 2489 of the Third Age, Gondor became aware of Balchoth movements near the Anduin River. Over a 30-year period, more of the Easterlings congregated in the area, likely supported by forces in Dol Guldur. As more and more Easterling groups entered the area, their actions evidently became bolder. Gondorian records indicate that Balchoth raiders routinely attacked the Vale of Anduin, effectively depopulating it. By 2509, it became clear that the Balchoth were going to launch an invasion of Gondor itself. In 2510, the steward Syrian sent assistance and military forces to the north. However, the situation seemed dire. The Balchoth had built boats and successfully crossed the Anduin. Somewhere near Kalinardin, a Gondorian army met the Balchoth in the field of battle. By chance or design, however, the unexpected occurred. An army of orcs had descended from the nearby mountains. The Gondorians were forced away and pushed to a small river known as the Limlight. A combined orc and Balchoth army nearly decimated the Gondorian force. And then, the riders of Yuthid emerged. Prior to Syrian's counteroffensive, the steward had sent six riders to request aid from King Errol. Only a single rider, a man named Borondir, succeeded in his quest. Upon hearing the message, Errol mustered his forces and rallied his riders. At the field of Celebrant, Errol came upon a great battle between Gondor, the Balchoth, and the Orcs. As our Gondorian historians tell us, quote, All hope was lost when unlooked for. The riders came out of the north and broke upon the rear of the enemy. Then the fortunes of battle were reversed, and the enemy was driven with slaughter over the limelight. Errol led his men in pursuit, and so great was the fear that went before the horsemen of the north that the invaders of the Wold were also thrown into panic, and the riders hunted them over the plains of Kalinardin. Gondor had been saved. In the aftermath of the battle, Syrian met with Errol on the hills of Amun Anwar. There, the steward of Gondor agreed to a pact with the Yothid. From this point on, the riders of Errol would be allocated the lands of Kalinardin. It would be here, in this confluence between the west and the east, between Gondor and Rune, that the riders of Rohan would emerge as a power unto themselves. As for the Balchoth, we can assume that this defeat had broken their spirits and forced them back across the Anduin and into Rune. We aren't given many details as to what happened next, but the story would have been similar to what we saw with the Wayne Riders. The Balchoth would have splintered and sundered into a thousand pieces, and the East would once more find itself disunited. It would be some time before the power of Rune would reconstitute itself, but that's a story for a different day, one that can be found in a very famous trilogy. For us, I think we'll leave our story at that. Today, we examine the eastern polities that made up the land of Rune. As I mentioned, our narrative was marred by a lack of sources, 
we were forced to rely on Gondorian and Elven records, and so our perspective is likely biased and lacking. We, for instance, talked little about political developments in Rune. We talked little about sociocultural and demographic changes in Rune. We talked little about the lives of the average and ordinary peoples in Rune. Our narrative today was focused solely on warfare and the martial interplay of Rune and the West. But that didn't mean we tried. We examined the cultural practices of the Wainwriters and the Balchoth, we discussed their connections to the wider world, and we summarized their own histories to the best of our ability. The land of Arda is beset by a sheer multitudes of peoples and cultures. It is a world with an amazing history, rich in detail and narrative. Even the mysterious land of Rune is filled with complexity and possibility, and hopefully, with the modern wave of post-colonial studies and anti-Orientalism, we can one day fully understand the peoples that resided here. And now, that's it. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Nomads and Empires podcast. Next time, we talk about the religion of the Scythians, a group that may have some commonalities with both the Wainriders and the Balchoth. I wonder why. Anyway, see you all next time on the windy plains of Far Eastern Rune.